HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is brought to you by Hearst Ranch Grass-Fed Beef, available on the internet at hearstranch.com. You have tuned in to the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to The Farm Report, and I am your host, Erin Fairbanks. We're coming to you from the back of Roberta's in beautiful and steamy Bushwick, Brooklyn. And today we are kicking off our three-part series on fiber, not just for breakfast. I don't know about you, but when I think about fiber, brand cereal and daily nutrient requirements come to mind. But according to the Oxford Dictionary, a Fiber is a thread or filament from which a vegetable tissue, mineral tissue, or textile is formed. And this may come as a surprise to some of you, but textiles are actually an agricultural product. And that's what we're going to be talking about over the course of the next three weeks, natural fibers. We're going to be exploring the world of fibers and how um, it's evolved in the Northeast. I want to give a big shout out to my co-producer on this series, Mary Jean Packer of Batten Kill Fibers, Carding and Spinning Mill. We spoke with her last week when she called in from the Washington County Fair to help us kick off the series. And you'll hear from her in a second. Um, And then we'll take a a quick break and bring, bring back a live guest. So listen up. Here's Mary Jean. Mary, welcome to the show. Hi, Aaron. Thanks. Great to be here. It's great. It's great to have you on. So we are, are kicking off the three-part series on fiber, and, and um, you've been such a help, kind of putting together the the series. We're going to be talking to a number of experts in the field, and I thought what we try to do today is get a general overview of what exactly the fiber world looks like. Uh, I know when I hear fiber, I usually think about you know raisin bran or or getting enough of it in my diet, but that's not the kind of fiber we're talking about. So. Why don't you just start us off with telling us a little bit about where fiber comes from? Well, the fiber we're here talking about today is the fiber that comes off of animals like sheep, alpacas, llamas, mohair goats, cashmere goats, angora rabbits, and more. Bison, musk ox, uh, you name it, and people are knitting with it. So that... That um, there's a kind of all different types of uh, 
agriculture happening in the fiber world? I mean, I know there are different breeds of animals that you just mentioned, and then within those breeds, kind of different characteristics um, that make their their kind of wool or their fibers more desirable. But what is kind of the next step? You have a, a, a live animal, and at what point do you start to kind of harvest the fiber, and, and what does that look like? Well, um, some breeds of sheep are shorn um, twice a year, and some breeds of sheep are shorn every year. Those other fiber animals are usually shorn uh, once a year, except for the, the rabbits and the cashmere's which are, are plucked or combed, they're not even even shorn. But the, the big majority of the, the fiber that we see here in the, the Northeast, 80, 85% is, is sheep wool. And within sheep, there's probably 80 different breeds of sheep. Many of them are, are bred for making meat or making milk. Sheep's milk cheese is very popular. Uh, so there's really just oh, a couple dozen breeds that are bred mainly for their fiber. And not to make it more confusing, but you can use the wool off of any of um, the sheep that are, are wool breed sheep. There's some kinds of sheep, hair breed, that you don't, don't really use the wool. But the bulk of the sheep, you could use their wool. It's just not as desirable. I get it. So, I mean, it's like when you're looking at breeds of animals for dairy production or meat production, when you're looking to produce a really high quality fiber, you're selecting for those fiber traits. Now, if you're if you have an animal on your farm that you're looking to harvest the, the fiber from, what kind of happens uh, at the end of that animal's lifespan? I mean, are they a multi-purpose in most places where they're also being used for meat or milk as maybe a secondary income source? Um, what's kind of the, the general... Uh, span. I mean, do most people look exclusively at fiber production, or is it a mixed bag on a farm? Well, even farms that are raising sheep primarily for fiber, um, most of the ram lambs end up on somebody's dinner table um, because there's just not that much demand for for rams. Um, in some cases, um, they'll neuter the ram and and keep him. If he's got that high quality of a fleece, and and as, you know, you're talking a little bit uh, about demand. I mean, then people used to come to New York around the turn of the century it was like a major textile producing region. I mean, how what does it look like today? I mean, in relation to I don't know the rest of the country or even uh, on the world market, uh, what it, what is the kind of volume we're talking about with regards to fiber production? Well, on the world market for wool, uh, the U.S. is not that big of a player when you consider the size of New Zealand and Australia and that it's just covered with sheep. Uh, but that said, and within this country, then you have the big farms out west in Montana and Wyoming down through Colorado and um, the, the Rocky Mountain states like that and some in Oregon, too. But then when you start heading east, uh, New York is, is still ranked pretty high in the number of, of sheep. And each year, um, the number of fleeces, weight of the fleeces coming off of New York sheep is, has been going up recently as opposed to going down. 
And part of that's because exactly what you said, Aaron, and it's the land form here that a lot of parts of New York aren't really suited to the large row crop, um, field crop, dairy operations, thousand head cows. There's small fields. You can't even turn some of these big tractors around in them hardly. So those kind of hill farms that always were home to big flocks of sheep are now coming back into sheep production. That's great. So you've seen kind of an increase in the last, I don't know, decade or two? I think really just in the last decade uh, with the rise of the sustainable agriculture and local foods movements. As people want to know their food hasn't traveled so far, or people want to know the farmer, that's where you're seeing um, this logical progression to people looking for an animal that can can fit onto the landscape uh, comfortably. The other thing is you're seeing more people starting farming that didn't grow up farming. You're seeing more single women seeing more older people who maybe worked 20 years in an office and said, you know what, I've still got 20 more years to work. I may as well start doing something I like for a change. And they're buying a farm. In all those cases, it's a whole lot less intimidating to buy 20 medium-sized sheep than it is 20 big Holstein cows. The investment is less, the infrastructure is less, and the animals themselves are a whole lot easier to manage. Excellent. So, you know, we are going to be bringing on uh, Andy Rice on June 28th to really um, take us through the world of of sheep shearing. Um, so I think we'll hold off to kind of talk more into that subject. But so you shear the sheep or you, you cut the hair or you comb the animal um, and you have kind of this pile of raw material. What, what's the next step from there? Well, actually, just today you're, you're hearing in the background the next step I'm set up down at the Washington County Fairgrounds in Greenwich, New York, where farmers from within about 150 miles of here are pulling up with their pickup trucks loaded with bags of wool that they are selling. It's called a wool pool, where all of the sheep farmers get, get what they've clipped together. We bale it up in 300-pound bales, and then we are selling that to a large national buyer. Oh, wow. So I, I kind of imagine that, um, you know, you see in movies where they would take kind of the tobacco harvest to auction and people walk around and they evaluate the quality and they talk price and there's buyers and sellers there. I mean, is that kind of the scene that you're sitting in right now? Well, there's the, there's the sellers. Um, there's only one buyer. We pre-negotiated the sale with a company down in South Carolina, and I went down there a couple of weeks ago and um, got some training on what they're looking for, and we're actually um, doing the grading here ourselves, and they were so pleased with what we had done last year and the fact that I took the training that they're paying our farmers about 20% more than we got for them last year. Wow, that is awesome. So it sounds like... um from, uh, from the production side, you can essentially sell your raw material uh, to a buyer, to a large wool mill. But a lot of um, small-scale producers are also choosing to process that 
uh, on the farm. So what would that look like? If you say we're going to keep a bale or two of, of wool for yourself, um, how do you turn that into into yarn? And this is where the whole value-added agriculture and buy local has again changed the look of the landscape. Ten years ago, I don't think you would have gone to one of the green markets in New York City and in the same booth with some beautiful sheep milk cheese also seen skeins of yarn. But now you do, and there's knitters right in midtown Manhattan who want yarn that's come right from upstate New York. So the market is now demanding it. There are probably a half a dozen fiber festivals between spring and fall across New York State where people who live in Rochester or Syracuse or the big, bigger cities come out to these fairgrounds and, and shop right from the farmer for some yarn that came from that farmer's sheep, alpacas, or, or whatever. And that's where a business like mine, Batten Kill Fibers, comes in, we will do custom processing for the farmer. They just bring us their their wool and tell us what they want made with it, sock yarn or heavyweight yarn for afghans or sweater weight yarn, and we'll process that into yarn that they can sell to their customers. Wow, that's great. And I know we have Donna Quinn of uh, Blue Bayou coming on the show for the July 5th series to talk a little bit about um, dyeing and growing plants and herbs for a natural dyeing of of wool, and I'm excited to kind of hear more about how how you you know change it from a raw material into the different colors that we see in yarn and in sweaters. What does it look like, you know, now? I mean, what color is like a raw bale of wool? Is it sparkly white or off off white, or does it really vary between breeds? There is a lot of variability between breeds. Some comes off the sheep pretty white, and others is quite quite yellow. But um, through our process that we're going to talk about, I, I think on a future show, um, through our process called scouring, um, which sounds worse than it is, we're able to get the lanolin out, and when you remove the lanolin, the dirt that's stuck to the white fleece uh, washes away, too. There's also a big demand for what they call natural colored wool. And I know you're planning to speak with a a Romney sheep farmer in one of your future segments as well. And she has just some absolutely beautiful natural colors, light gray, dark gray, oatmeal, chocolate, sometimes all from one animal. And those are very prized by the hand spinner and also prized by the knitter. And Donna will tell you that you can also dye over, or called over dye, the natural colors to make a deeper, more uh, rich color as well. That's awesome. I think it's going to be a, a really interesting couple of weeks. And um, before we kind of uh, wrap up here, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about about this knit local movement. I mean, there is a real kind of um, groundswell of people interested in in, in this production, but also in, in the knitting. And then you had mentioned that a little earlier as a really driving factor in, in what type of animals are being produced. And, and what would you say about kind of the power of this community and maybe its direction going forward? Do you have a sense of, of what things are going to look like over the next 10 years? 
Oh, I see a movement that's pretty much just begun in the last year or two growing dramatically as knitters begin to ask questions about what's in this fiber that we just bought from China. How how was this processed? Is it healthy for us to be breathing this? We we don't want something that was made halfway around the world. We want something that was made upstate. And um, I saw at the Maryland Sheep and Wool Festival this year people in line to buy fiber from a breed-specific farm-to-knitter company. They go out to the farms, buy the wool, have it processed, and then they sell to the knitter for different projects. So, for example, you would have a Romney sheep that they're recommending for a shawl or a Cheviot sheep for sock yarn or Dorset for hats and mittens. Um, even five years ago, you wouldn't have seen that at Maryland Sheep and Wool. And now that people are starting to understand the American breeds, the Northeast breeds, and what they can knit with it, you're just going to see that grow, grow, and grow. I have a couple of customers who are dyers. They don't have sheep. They just want plain white yarn. They dye it and sell it at these festivals and at yarn stores. And their customers are saying to them, we don't want any more dyed white yarn from China. We only want to buy yarn that's been dyed on a base that's made in this country. Wow, that's exciting. So. Um, thanks so much for taking some time out to, to join us today and give us kind of a quick overview of the subjects we'll be talking into over the, the next couple of shows. And we will have you back on the uh, 5th of July to really go through uh, scouring, carding, spinning, and, and how fiber is turned into yarn kind of step by step and what some of the options are. So I look forward to speaking with you again. And thanks for coming on the show. You're very welcome. I'll talk with you in July. Awesome. Thanks, Mary Jean. You're welcome. Okay, so that was a little bit of a pre-recorded segment. Don't try to go to the Washington County Fair and see Mary Jean today because that was last week. Um, We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will have Mary Pratt of Elihu Farm on the line to talk a little bit more about fiber. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef. Pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, free-range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, the authentic flavor of the American West.
right, we are back. You have tuned into the Farm Report on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks, and we are now on the line with Mary Pratt of Alahu Farms. Mary, welcome to the show. Hello. So great to have you on. So I thought... Oh, sorry. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> We're so polite. Um, I, th- I thought we'd um, kind of kick off by getting a little bit of a sense uh, of the farm and kind of how you got into production and, and what you guys are growing up there. Sure. Uh, we have, um, well, we, we started far- our farm in 1986, and uh, we had a few a few bits of poultry and this and that, and then we bought two meat lambs for the summer because we had always liked lamb. And uh, a friend took one and we took one for our freezer. And then uh, we got some bread used that fall and started raising sheep part-time at first. And what uh, what does your production look like today? Today we have a little over 100 ewes. Uh, we have, um, uh, we get about 170, 150 to 170 lambs a year. And uh, we started farming full-time in 1999, and we did diversify into laying hens uh, about three years ago, geese, and uh, this year, ducks. And then we had also had some goats for a while, but goats were not us. Uh, we, did not, we did not do well with goats. Um, cool. So it sounds <laughs> like you have a, like a good uh, selection when it comes to dinner time anyway. Right, right. Yeah, yeah we never have a shortage of eggs for the table. So I'm wondering, you mentioned a couple different terms, and, and I think because we're going to be talking a lot about sheep, it's probably good to go through some of the different names. And so I'm wondering if you can kind of take us through the male and the female terms for the animals um, and how they may change over, you know, different parts of their life. Okay, well, um, the adult female is the ewe, and you generally call them a ewe once they're a year old or more. Under a year, uh, they're generally considered lambs, so you would call her a ewe lamb. The same with rams. You would call uh, the males are ram lambs, and then when they grow up to be bad boys, they are, ram, they are rams. <laughs> and uh, uh, most of the time, very few rams are kept because, uh, and, and well, we keep, we keep one, maybe one ram lamb in a year. We might sell one or two. And we keep between 10 and 20% of our ewe lambs, and the rest uh, we sell as food. So I know that um, there are some decisions with regards to what what type of uh, sheep you're going to raise. So how did you guys, what are you guys raising, and how did you choose that particular breed? Well, we, uh, we experimented a little bit. We did not start with a grand plan. Um, I, I bought practice sheep, and I have to say I was what I call practice sheep. And I have to say I was very fortunate that the people I bought from didn't sell me any problems. They, they were good, healthy ewes. And um, a couple of people that I met early on became, you know, they've been friends for 20 years, and that's been wonderful. Uh, we were thinking first of lamb chops, and uh, then I bought some crossbred ewes that had really beautiful wool. And I, I had no idea. I always liked to wear wool sweaters, but I had no idea how beautiful wool could be. So the first ram we bought was from one of our early uh, sheep mentors, and it was a Romney, which is a long wool breed. And I liked him so much that I then the following year, I probably was the fall of 1980 seven or eight, I bought some bread Romney ewes, purebred ewes. Up until that point, 
all of our sheep were crossbreds or unregistered animals. And so now you're dealing with um, just registered Romneys, is that right? No, we also, uh, we, kept, we kept breeding our, our, some of our original ewes um, to, either Rom, to Romney rams, and then everything was going to look like a Romney, so I bought a crossbred finer wooled sheep, which had, uh, was mostly what the breed is called Rambouillet, or I suppose if you're French, I'm not good at French, but you might call it Rambouillet. And, uh, but in the U.S., they call them Rambouillets, and um, they're a finer wool sheep. They are the French version of the Merino, and people have probably heard a lot about Merino wool. If you see the Woolmark label from Australia, the, a lot of that is, is uh, Merino wool, fine wool. And then Merino's also been advertised a lot, and you see socks. They'll say they're uh, 100% Merino, or they'll so-and-so, so much nylon and whatever, and then the rest, the, the one percentage will be Merino wool. So the Merino... Wool growers in Australia have done a very good job at branding their um, their wool. Yeah, I would say that that term is is definitely familiar. And I think one of the interesting things for me about this series has been really looking at at textiles as an agricultural product. Um, now, you said sheep were, were kind of a choice for you guys initially because you were into. Um, eating lamb, but is there much of a history with, with raising sheep in, in the region where you're located? Oh, yes. Um, sheep, well, I, I'd like, I should say first that we, we did concentrate on Romney because it is a dual-purpose sheep. It's got very good meat qualities, as well as really nice, longer, longer stapled wool, which grows very well in our climate. But in the past, uh, historically, at one time, Washington County, and probably most of New York, was very well known for sheep. Um, Washington County in the mid-1800s had more sheep than any other county in New York, and um, its wool clip was the second largest, I forget what year it was, I think 1848 or 1849, was the second largest uh, number of pounds of wool produced in, in the, in the uh, state, and the... Um, write-up that I have from one of the old New York Agriculture Society books said that uh, Washington County's wool was thought to be better. It was mostly merino, and at one time there was this big merino boom in Vermont and New Hampshire, and it spilled over into New York, into Washington, especially into Washington County. And so today, like, I mean, considering the breed that you're working with, I mean, where does that fit? I mean, if we were talking in a spectrum of, like, highest, you know, rarest quality wool to kind of the standard, you know, commercial grade wool. Where, you know, where is Romney in, in that range? Or, or well, can you talk I a little bit about that? Any wool is good wool if it's well cared for. Um, I think in the, in the U.S., if you're looking at commercial wool clips from the western states produce the Rocky Mountain states and uh, even some of the drier climate states like Arizona and New Mexico and Texas produce a lot of merino wool or rambouillet. And uh, those, those, uh, some of those clips are very specialized. By clip, I mean the, the wool that's shorn off the sheep are very specialized and very, very high-quality fine wool. And fine wool worldwide has always brought more than the coarser wools. Um, probably because it's best for next to the skin wear and also um, the very fine worsted wool suits that you find from Italy and other countries are generally merino. But the Romney is very useful for blankets, for weaving, for even for, for hand, hand spinners love Romney wool because it is very easy to spin and it's lustrous and it's just beautiful and um, it, it's versatile other than 
making really fine wool product. It's a very versatile wool. It can be used for, for rugs, from rugs to, I'd say, sweaters, hats, and gloves. And what, what color is it? Well, the Romney, the Romney uh, comes in both white and gray and dark, almost black. And uh, the Romney Sheep Association in the U.S. was one of the, I think it may have been the first purebred association in the United States to actually register the natural colored or the, the sheep with the gray and the black wool. And uh, in commercial circles, black and gray wool is frowned upon because you, if you're working with white wool and you have black fibers in the wool, they're very, very visible if you're making yarn and it has black fibers. Uh, but with uh, hand spinners, they often like the novelty and the uh, beauty of the natural colored fleeces. So most of the commercial, the commercial farms in the U.S., the big, the big ranches out west, will not have black sheep. But a lot of the more craft-oriented farms will have, will have natural colored sheep. And, and with some breeds like the Icelandic and the Shetland and the Caracal, the colored sheep are much more common than the white sheep. Interesting. And what is the difference between, you know, you, you've mentioned, you've, you've referred to wool, and then you've also referred to fleece. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> well, the fleece is what is on the sheep, uh, the, the wool fibers that are actually on the sheep. And uh, the, the, we have our shearer come and remove the wool from each sheep, and we put each fleece in the bag, and the fleece is made up of wool. And uh, when you start talking about clothing and yarn, you won't call it a fleece yarn or a fleece, fleece sweater. You'll call it wool because the fiber itself is called wool. Got it. I'm just curious. So I was uh, recently I took a trip uh, over to Ireland and we were touring around and definitely saw lots of sheep in that part of the world as well. But I kept running into animals that had kind of big blue splotches or red splotches on them. I mean, it was obviously not um, something that the sheep was producing, but some kind of marking. Is oh, was that on the, on the butt, on the back end of the sheep? Yeah. Uh, at, breed, at breeding time, um, we have a, a nylon harness that has a crayon, and you put that on the rams, and um, when the ram breeds the ewe, the crayon makes a mark. Uh. And so you can tell if the ewe has been bred, and... Uh, you change the crayon about every 17 days, and then if um, to put a different color on, so then you get a good idea which use are bred and which use aren't. Okay, that that makes sense. I had thought that. I guess I was just because I've seen that in goats, but I was surprised by the area of coverage that the um, ram was able to, you know, spread that right, spread right. that Some crayon around. Boys. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Some rams work very hard. <laughs> and and I don't know how much you can speak to this, but I know from my time in Washington County that there there is kind of a variety of um, fiber animals in that area. And I'm wondering if you can comment on, you know, the rise in alpacas or llamas or some of the other oh, right. types of animals. Yes. Um, when we started raising sheep years ago, I don't even know if there were many alpacas in the United States. I don't remember when llamas started to be more well-known, but um, certainly in the past 10 or 15 years, there's been a, a very large increase in the number of people raising alpacas in our county. I don't think we have many people raising llamas for fiber like we do for al the alpacas. Uh, and as far as the sheep goes, there's a good variety of breeds of sheep in the county from the 
the typical, what you might call uh, more specialized for meat, and the meat breed's wool is more springy and not as easily spun, but it does make great socks and blankets. And then we have, I know we have at least one farm that raises a very coarse wool breed called a Cotswold, and the Cotswold is a, a region of Britain. A lot of our breeds got named after the regions of Britain where they came from. And the, but the merino is from Spain, and the and of course the Icelandic is from Iceland, and the Shetland from the Shetland Islands. A lot of the alpacas, I believe, were imported. I guess the alpaca is native to South America, and I, I would imagine all the all or most of the alpacas that came into the United States originally originated in South America. Got it. So New York has, like like in all things, kind of become a melting pot for animals around yes, the think world. Yeah, that's a good that's a good way of putting it. Uh, we also have. Some of our our small farms that produce fiber also raise angora rabbits, and uh, they are um, they produce a very fine, fluffy fiber and can either be plucked when they shed, or they can be shorn with a scissors. And uh, people use angora for a lot of blending with wool or alpaca. And then there is a breed of there are two breeds of goats that um, produce use a, produce fiber that is used in garments. One is the uh, angora goat, and the fiber it produces is called mohair, and the other is the cashmere goat, and most of the imports of cashmere goats, I think, came from Australia. And uh, we at one time had cashmere goats, but as I said, the goats did not wor- work out well, but the fiber was beautiful, and, and I was able to sell the fiber for 3 to $5 an ounce. Wow. And how does that compare to, to the rate that you would get for, for, the, for the Romney fiber? Uh, anywhere between five and I'd say ten tops would be twelve dollars a pound. Okay. So I might end, I might get sixty dollars for tops would be maybe sixty to seventy probably sixty dollars for my best selling Romney fleece. That would be the whole fleece from one sheep for one year with any of the dirty edges removed and any contamination of hay removed. And I know when um, we heard from Mary Jean earlier in the segment um, that that she was selling, you know, baled wool to a, a kind of a large. Um, I, I'm sorry, I'm like blanking on the term, but like oh, a large it's a, mill. It's a commercial buyer. Yeah, uh, I believe the I believe he's from Massachusetts, and um, yeah, that, that's been a service that has gone on in um, in smaller areas uh, where where. Individual farmers don't have enough wool to attract a larger commercial buyer. And uh, this is, I used to, uh, we had, there was a predecessor wool pool called the Eastern New York Sheep and Wool Growers that had been around for many years. And we used to sell, uh, we also had some meat breeds, and the fleeces from those we would tend to sell at what's called the wool pool, P-O-O-L. And um, you would, uh, you, you know, we would, sometimes still a tractor trailer with wool at that pool and uh then i think there isn't there i think there was some decline in the in sheep in other parts of our area and uh but now i think you know with mary jean starting her her cooperative up um you know i think that's that's a sign that the wool has uh seen some renaissance and also the price of wool has gone up uh when when the eastern new york co-op Dissolved. I don't know if it ever dissolved or if it just went moribund, but um, the price of the commercial value of wool was only about 25 cents a pound. And I believe now uh, the prices I've been seeing quoted for 
wool from where you mix a lot of producers' wool together is been somewhere between ninety cents and a dollar a pound. Okay, so there's quite a range there. Now, yeah, it is. So it is. does that mean you sell your wool directly? I sell most of my wool to hand spinners or as much as I can. And that's because you have a, a, a higher, I'm assuming because you're, you, you're, the quality of your product is kind of in demand by that market. We, we have a good reputation for having really clean and soft fleeces and that are easy to spin. Excellent. And we also have some finer wool fleeces here ourselves that have our, they're from different crossbred sheep. And um, just to give us more variety, if we go to an event called some of these events are called fiber festivals where many, many vendors come together, say, on a fairgrounds. And there, there is one in Washington County in the end of September. Um, they, they, a number of vendors come together at a fairgrounds or another, another uh, t- or an e- exhibition hall or something like that. And, and uh, so many customers come because there's a great variety of the products available, anywhere from, from raw wool like we sell, the, the fleeces that are not washed, uh, two finished garments and rugs and sweaters and hats and tapestries and all kinds of things, felt. Wow, that sounds great. So it would be a nice spot to catch up with, with you and, and get a kind of chance to put your hands on a variety of stuff. Well, we are almost out of time, but I have kind of two last questions for you. Um, one is sheep as an animal kind of have this reputation for, for being a little bit dumb or in, like having a herd mentality. And, and I'm wondering if that has been your experience or, or if you oh, have any I, sense I of where that, that came um, from. I, I don't know where that came from, but all livestock and poultry tend to be herd or flock animals. You have flocks of chickens, you have flocks of geese, we have um, herds of cattle, and, and they all like company. And they're, they're sociable animals with each other. I don't think sheep are particularly dumb. They are a prey species, and they are easily easily attacked by coyotes, where a coyote can take a sheep or a goat, and, and very, you know, a, a pack of coyotes would never be able to take down an adult cow. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. you got a little bit of size, just like on the, play- yeah, and, <laughs> just and like and the guess, playground. I guess there are various d- different degrees of intelligence in the farm animals, but... Uh, uh, some people say, well, if they were really smart, we probably wouldn't eat them. <laughs> <laughs> um, I hope none of your viewers mind that comment or <laughs> listeners mind that comment. No, I mean, I think it's like real talk on the farm report. It's, it's farming. Yeah. Um, and then, well, you know, just one more thing about your farm more generally. I know that um, you have ta- you talked a little bit at the beginning about having kind of a diversification uh, of animal types. But one of the other things that I know you guys have pursued there. Um, you worked with the Agricultural Stewardship Association, and you do have part of your land in an easement. And I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit uh, about the decision to pursue that and, and how that process has well, gone for you. We were able to buy, we, we started our farm with 43 acres and a barn and a house, and we were able to buy some land after that. And, um, you know, I, I know the neighbor we bought the land from wanted to see it in farming, and my feeling is the only way you can make sure that land is going to stay in farming is, you know, words are no good. A deed is a lot safer. So we had the land put into easement so that it would be farmland forever, and that was really important to us. And eventually the rest of our farm will be preserved. And and partly I think as a result of that, the Ag- Agriculture Stewardship Association likes to see blocks of land set aside for agriculture, and the land across the road from us, about 109 acres, is now 
under easement with ag stewardship, as is land on a nearby road. And the people that donated that easement, or I guess they sold that easement, there were sometimes there's money available to actually buy the development rights. Um, the husband of that couple grew up in our house. And oh, wow. he, has, he has since died, but that was so touching to know that, you know, he he and his wife preserved their land, and, and he grew up in our house. Wow. So lots of history, lots of great stuff. There so, is, yeah. So if people want to get in touch with you, I know that you said they could reach you by phone at 518-753-7838. Or That's correct. They, I guess, can maybe hunt you down at the Washington County Fair this this fall? I don't know if we'll be showing sheep this year, but we will definitely be at the Southern Adirondack Fiber Festival. Awesome. And I can give you my email address if you want. Go ahead. It's Elihu Farm, E-L-I-H-U-F-A-R-M, at localnet.com. Awesome. Mary, thank you so much for joining us today. And well, thank you for asking. Of course. And thanks. <laughs> thanks. <Okay. to laughs> take care. Thanks also to Mary Jean Packer for uh, kicking off the series and helping put together a great lineup. Tune in for the June 28th and July. This shows to hear more on fiber. Also, big thanks to Joe for engineering today's show. You can always find archived episodes of the Farm Report on heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes as a podcast. Remember, we're live every Thursday at 1 p.m. And if you have any questions for the show, you can email us at info at heritageradionetwork.org. See you next week, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.